It is estimated that 75% or more of all silent films have been lost forever. Negligence, greed, malice, and war have overseen the erasure of the majority of films' earliest years. But all hope is not lost. Long-forgotten films are being rediscovered in the unlikeliest of places. For the first time in over a century, we are able to return to context these previously unknowable works. It is our job to write the next chapter of their histories. Ashes to classics, rescued from oblivion. Welcome back to another episode of the aforementioned Ashes to Classics, a silent film podcast where we talk about recovered, previously lost silent films. I am Stephen, as always, and as always, I am joined, perhaps led, by David. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Stephen. It's a very uh, humbling statement. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess I'll take up that mantle. I am leading yeah. here in, in, in a way, doing a lot of groundwork. But you're providing just as much uh, insight into the films we discuss oh, here, which is very valuable. Thank you so much. Again, I'm going to, well, there's very little insight to provide of the films later, but we'll get to that later. It's going to be a very, like, front-loaded insight podcast. A lot of insight for the first 45 minutes. And then yeah. some shrugs, I guess. So wait, wait for audible shrugs. Yeah, I hope anyone listening was not expecting some grandiose finale of a two-parter here based on uh, the, the <laughs> delay we had on top of that. Uh, I, yeah. I didn't know necessarily what to expect going in, but we, we definitely had an impression coming out. And it is perhaps not the... Uh, yeah, may, maybe Metropolis would have been enough to go on. But maybe we'll just talk about that instead for a lengthy period of time. Yeah, I'm more than happy to talk about Metropolis for, for a good while. So it's been <laughs> an interesting one because like Fritz Lang is a... So I had to, as aforementioned, for a watch party as part of the r slash letterboxd reddit discord god knows how the nomenclature works there um i was enlisted to put together a short introduction on metropolis uh, but i was reading a, a book on uh, german expression at the time so right up on that right about metropolis did a thing so i have a enthusiast background in lang and the early years uh, more so than i had done previously so i'm about to chime in a little bit more than usual apart from just going like oh cool interesting yeah. and oh so um enriching I think among Sinest circles, even though we talked a lot about how Lubitsch had such a great impact yeah. as an American filmmaker yes. uh, last time, you could argue that Lang was actually even more ubiquitous, uh, both in his late German period and in his American oeuvre. Mm. People, generally speaking, uh, particularly the former, are very familiar with those films. Those are some of the first older films I think a lot of people get into. Your likes yeah, of yeah, your, yeah. your uh, Metropolis and M and, M. and such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... Uh, you, you, you may end up touching, if you dive into some of the film noir sections, you're going to hit some Lang films for sure on those lists mm. and going through. There's some big highlights there. So, yeah. Uh, and also, you know, as, as you've mentioned consistently throughout the podcast, he's also in Godard's Contempt. So people may yeah. be familiar with him there as well. It's a good movie. It's a good movie. Um, I feel like there is a stylistic, obviously... Um, creep of Lubitsch that the the approach of Lubitsch is is can be seen in in the films that go on from that but maybe the name of Lubitsch is not as on the tongue of popular culture whereas you could argue that maybe Lang's approach isn't as influential to the extent on how cinema was styled but the name is more known he is more of a known figure even if his literal influence on the medium is not as profound I, I would agree and I think part of that is just because people you know like like when we're talking about the classics or the canon or whatnot yeah. We're just drawn to the more serious dramatic films more people yeah. want to see yeah, be taken more seriously. So the comic films of Lubitsch um, less frequently make top yes. list top contenders. They're, they're uh, uh, not taken as seriously, I'm, even though... I'm like, guilty of that because when yeah. I go for my, you know, what's my best Lubitsch, I'm like, well, you know, to be or not to be has that has that melancholy and meaningful layer as well, as if, as if comedy needs to be more than just, than just mm. comedy, if it needs to have that. That, that one's that got that historic significance too, exactly. though. You know, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. It's hard to ignore that, so of course. But yeah, mm. gen generally speaking, if you look at any like list considerations or anything, yeah. the more serious, you know, artistic films make make the top because people want to be taken more seriously. And comedy is often undercut in in uh, critical considerations. And as such a, a medium concerned with imagery, the, the images of Metropolis are somewhat undeniable and are mm. very recognisable and are imitated as pure imagery. I mean, even like the first Star Wars film, uh, Star Wars, as it is called, um, has like <laughs> some of the designs from Metropolis in that like junk crawl, doesn't it? Of like, you go around and, like, oh, that's like that from that. So there is this, the iconography is known more than the film is even known. 
I mean, if you want to be even more explicit, C three PO is literally based on the um, yeah. Maria robot. It's it's just like a one to one. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that was obviously a little later. Like like Lang developed his way up until that masterpiece. Mm. We have a we have a little history here. It's it's interesting because yes. the films we're talking about today are actually the oldest surviving films of Lang's career yeah. that we can observe. So really, it's like. We're talking about the beginning with their film of the week, but there's a whole trajectory and career that comes thereafter, which has had an even greater impact and is important, I think, to contextualizing the start. I think we should destroy these films so his earliest surviving films can be better movies. <laughs> oh, that feels antithetical to the whole mission statement of our series here. It's true. It's, it's true. This is a true, villain arc. No, these these are important to to be kept. You know, so, um, somewhat it, it allows us. It's it's a good leeway, a good entry point into the conversation we're going to have here about mm. Lang's filmography, and that yep. is good if nothing else. Again, in the same vein that the Burning Soil allowed us to talk about Murnau yeah. in this context, yeah. well, this this is an entry point for Lang, and he I is a very important like figure this because it's going to allow me to talk about that I've watched Le Vampire several times, so I can <laughs> I can come across as a fancy boy by talking about Le Vampire several times on this because oh, this wishes it was Le Vampire, but it's not. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a popular thing. So yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting talking points this will allow us to touch on. Again, contextualizing yeah. the history of early film, uh, which is kind of the whole idea between these selections yeah. here. So even if the films are less stellar than some of the other ones we'll touch <laughs> on here, it's it's opening the door in the conversation. Yes. But uh, particularly around Lang. So uh, yeah. do, do you want me to dive in or do you want to give me some bullet points on what you know about Lang? Well, no, because I, I, I don't want to get things out of order. Um, and I'm aware that you have the notes to hand, so I, I, I will I will chime in irritatingly and be like, "Yeah, you are." Uh, okay. As you tell me things that I've half remembered. Well, well, I bet you can make a guess here as to the beginning. So, in the very beginning, Fritz Lang got his entrance into film in the early uh, 19-teens with what fame in German impresario? This guy again, who I just blanked the name of, but the guy that comes up every episode. Max, Max Reinhardt? <laughs> there you go, Max Reinhardt. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, the guy from... My mind was going, what's that guy called in Overwatch? Because it's that, isn't it? <laughs> and... No. Actually, that was a trick question. No, he has no association with Max Reinhardt no. whatsoever. Which That's is very interesting, point. I found. Uh, but instead, he's a, a different figure, a different figure that was important to touch on here, and I thought we would use this to go. And that figure that he is tied to is Eric Palmer. Uh, Eric Palmer was, uh, unlike Reinhardt, who was the kind of theater impresario, the, uh, you know, fixation on that and dabbled in film. Eric Palmer was a leading developer, leading producer of films in the 1920s. He he kind of built up some of that and, you know, then worked with a lot of people. He founded Decla Film, which was Germany's second largest studio uh, in the teens, right behind uh, UFA, of course, which was assembled from the, the, the government consolidation. Yeah, uh, and using the leftover assets from a French production company he'd been operating after the embargoes of the war had threatened to confiscate all foreign assets within the country. So basically, once you know he was operating under a French company who was doing production work in Germany, and then when the country closed down all imports and everything during the war, he just took all of the equipment basically and all of the assets and all the connections and just stuck them in Germany so they wouldn't get confiscated. Mm. So just totally consolidated the there under his own private company, which became Decla Film. I do remember from the research I did for Lang of like his his start in image creation was his role in the war of like he was charged with going to um, scout outposts and do um, images and pictures of formations. So that was what the least writer of that text like looked as like the early influence of him was as an image maker after he had rebelled um, from his upbringing before that mm-hmm. point. So, Decla not only produced the films that we're talking about today, the the Spiders, Die yeah. Spinnen, but yeah. also some other important films from Murnau and Lang alike. But also, when we cool. touched on many times here, Decla was the producer and distributor of Dust Cabinet Dis Dr. Caligari. That's a good movie. That's the one <laughs> I think it's come up every single episode, and it's, yeah, yeah. it's no surprise really? why. In the, in the, in the Weimar film series, uh, <laughs> Caligari has come up several times. Next, you tell me that we keep mentioning Metropolis. Um, mm-hmm. So... In, in 1921, Decla was merged into Ufa, which led Palm, to Palmer's appointment as head of the whole production outfit. So now he's at the top, the top of the top here. Uh, and under his leadership, the bulk of the era's most prestigious films were made, all of which we've discussed repeatedly on this season. So, yeah. Der the Man, Dr. Mapusa, Tartufa, Variety, Metropolis, Der Blue Angel, all of those 
were made under his oversight of okay. Ufa. So, again, like, just touching on all the important ones. So, even though we haven't referenced him throughout here, Eric Palmer we can attribute with some of the most enduring successes of the Weimar period. Do you reckon that, that company background is part of why they're enduring? Because they had, like, capital behind them, because they had status behind them, and then there's more of, like, an attempt to to preserve and, like, a, a sort of lineage that, that links the movies together. Is that a bit determined by status? No, I think it's a more of a case of, like, where you had these artistic producers in America. Yeah. You know, if you think back to, like, uh, your David Selznick's or your Irving Thalberg's, okay. these people who were revered for their ability to oversee a production and uh, okay. make artistic input while still giving directors the, the agency to be creative and outgoing and bold. Uh, you know, they, they weren't like the, the money men in between or anything. They were these artistic uh, lines between the money yeah. and the, the visionaries. So it sounds, it seems to me that Eric Palmer is more of that kind of breed of producer. Mm. You know, some some of these unsung filmmakers that, because we, we don't attribute them in the artistic process as innately as someone like a director or a cinematographer. Well, do you reckon that's the, the increasing, like, commodification of the film process that is so moneyed? that now producers but are like seen as like faceless bureaucrats because there is so much just like wealth and influence being thrown around as opposed to and, and also it's part of like the auteur kind of like myth we like to think of plucky young creatives being constrained by big money men um and like that's perhaps the the modern portrait of the producer i think a lot of it is just that we a lot of us still people who aren't in the industry just don't mm. Really, fully understand what the producer role is, and it kind of can't. I think without being role, yeah, because it's, yeah. It's depending on the production, you are in charge of the production, and the production is going to be different. And it's very varied, and because it's often not tangible, not e easily visible, what they do in the final product itself, because it's so much more kind of managerial. Yeah, uh, I feel it's understood in TV when I hear conversations about TV, especially reality TV, which is the most conversed about TV. People always refer to the producers have done this because I, I, they get the feel that this has been. I think like reality TV, though I have no interest in it as a medium, it's really nice as an instructional thing of like, look how things are orchestrated and created. It mm -hmm. makes direction and production very, very clear. Just like this should be real, and clearly it is not. So that kind of like the way the image is maltreated or mistreated or pushed into things makes it clear what production can do of choices to reframe and to well, embed messages and ideas. Even in fictional television, we see the auteur, the, you know, kind of the visionary behind the, the mm. show to be the showrunner versus yeah. the directors because those yeah. often changed out episode per episode. So yeah. there's a kind of guiding vision there. But yeah, it's harder with film because there's yeah. sometimes where a producer is very involved, very impactful, like some of the ones we've named here, and all, sometimes seen as the visionary himself more than the director. Yeah. But then there's also times when it's just like a cast of no nobodies, you know, just the, the studio people who oversee the, mm. the money and kind of uh, uh, sometimes even inhibit the, the film. Well, yeah, buck stops this person, so it's either they can use that of being like, cool, I'll sign off, or I'll use that freedom to allow you to have freedom, or they'll use that freedom to realize now I can assert a vision on something because ultimately I have decisional power. Yeah, so to me it doesn't sound like Palmer was one mm. of those like who exercised their own vision, yeah. but were, were collaborative with the directors who had a vision and cool. allowed them to flourish. Again, that's why we get so many of these great enduring masterpieces from Ufa okay, during the so 1920s. As, as platformer of, I have the resources to to platform yeah. creators and let them do things. That's really yeah, they, interesting. They facilitate that. They recognize the talent. They allow them to flourish and they guide them in a helpful direction with all of the yeah. assets that they have uh, yeah. access to. So yeah. that, that, that seems to be, again, an important unsung figure of mm. German expressionism that is worth highlighting through the vessel of Lang's collaborative uh, relationship. Totally, totally. So Lang was first brought into the film production fold as a writer for Dekla in 1918. Yeah. His contributions are little known today due to the scarcity of those early efforts. Again, like, we don't even have any of the films he directed before De Spinnen. Yeah. Uh, he began directing less than a year after being brought into the studio, though, debuting with uh, Hal Blut, or The Half-Breed. It's, it's another lost film again. His it oldest sounds surviving... like I don't wish to watch it based on the title, I'll be honest. <laughs> yeah, probably. Again, it's a, uh, we've seen the increase in racism over the course of the series here ironically i did, I did mm. not plan it that way i didn't schedule it. Oh. <laughs> imagine if you did what a weird arc to have planned um, oh it probably would have been better right like okay i gotta ease steven into this we gotta go with the uh less racist films first and then we'll work our way up yeah. to the really exploitative stuff yeah, yeah, yeah 
So, purportedly, Lang was actually assigned to direct Caligari in 1919 originally, but he yeah. was forced to relinquish the production to Robert Vine when Die Spinnen required a lot of additional work. So, that's that's kind of an interesting what-if scenario mm -hmm. in history. If you, yeah, like these Lang associated with this large-scale, again, uh, iconic, impactful expressionist film. But it's yeah. uh, who's to say if it would have, especially compared with the spiders now, <laughs> if, if it would have been nearly successful. But his his uh, writing career did lead to one other very fruitful collaboration uh, relationship that is just impossible to disconnect with yeah. Long's career, and and that's with his soon to be wife Thea von Harbo. This is when we enter the who's going to be a Nazi and who's not going to be a Nazi section. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think you know the answer to that one. Very known this time. Very very known this time. A little bit complicated on one side, actually. A little bit complicated on the Lang side, but mm -hmm. very clear on the other. Yeah, it's interesting looking into her contributions to the nazi regime later on in life it's yeah uh, i don't know again like kind of like the the nuance not to split nazi hairs here but like how active a nazi someone was versus not you know there is a certain amount of measure there but that yeah. is not to say that there is any ambiguity in her dedication to propping up and assisting the nazi regime yeah there is there's a base level of, of in, in inherent complicity no, uh, yeah, not just inherent, but active. I would say yeah, like yeah, she was yeah. she was actively contributing, but yeah, uh, uh, again, under what what guise, what motivation? There, there is more where the nuance I lies. I'm misremembering, but I think I remember the book talking about how she like directed a thing under the regime, but did not like did. how it was meddled with, and then went back into the writing role of mm -hmm. a little bit of a troubled production. Yep, that sounds accurate from what I had read and, and researched yeah. on her. But yeah, uh, obviously there's, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I just think it's interesting to explore like that, how much involvement there, but it's not too, um, muddy her, yeah. her involvement, which was again, completely unambiguous. Yeah. Very, yeah. Dedicated in that sense and complicit. Anyway, before that though, she met Lang when they were uh, assigned to collaborate on adapting her novel, uh, the Indish Grand Ball in 1918. Yeah. That was the first part of the Indian Tomb, which we talked about starring Conrad uh, Veidt in his episode. Uh -huh. The two began not only a successful creative partnership, which would span the entirety of Long's career in Germany until his departure in 1933, but a romantic affair as well, culminating in their official union in 1922. Von Harbaugh became one of the most prolific screenwriters of the Weimar era, working not only alongside her husband for the entirety of the decade, but also penning script for such luminaries as Murnau, Dupont, and Karl Dreyer. So she Ooh, was like all it. over the place and incredibly respected, but had this very uh, back-and-forth... Uh, successful partnership with, with long in particular and you can see yeah. her philosophy coming through in the writing which is uh always very interesting again it's not just like which the, links to the, the later metropolis conversation about the the much debated um ethics and politics of metropolis which can be read multiple ways yeah yeah so they uh von harbo and long specialized in a kind of grandiose epic filmmaking that dwarfed even the italian super spectacles we talked about last week uh, or last time in the early feature era the four-and-a-half-hour-long Dr. Mabuza de Spieler is a titanic blockbuster with stunning expressionist flair. It's crowd-bleasing crime epic with distinct thematic overtones reflecting the broken state of Germany's post-war social setting, outlining itself as the perfect example of Krakauer's tyrant film archetype, which we've touched on a number of times here. If you have not checked out that film, which I imagine you haven't because it's very long, <laughs> it, it is very much worth seeing still. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a... Yeah. It's grandiose, and it's terrific, uh, and it pairs well with his uh, follow-up film in 1933, which we'll touch on when we get to the end of that part. Yeah. But de definitely a high watermark for that point in his career, 1922. Um, pretty significant, you know, uh, step up again, especially in terms of what we're seeing today. So the mammoth Dr. Mabuza was followed up by a two-part fantasy epic, Der Nibelungen, based on the famous German uh, legend. Yeah. Have you seen the, the, those films at all? No, but I know that Matt has and likes them um, and was really impressed by the first one, at least. And I remember, again, reading about them. I remember the, the point being that he felt he had done his debt to um, German's mythical past, mm -hmm. Germany's mythical past. And then he thought that Metropolis was his bit to Germany's mythical future. Um, so they were paired in his mind that way, or at least the writer of the book that I read, um, classed it that way. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that assessment. It's very interesting, the kind of 
wide range of um grand genres he's exploring here so you've got this crime epic with dr mabuza yeah. then you have this fantasy epic with uh der nibelungen and it's actually it's really impressive again just in terms of scale that's like the big Mabusa, thing isn't there? The, yeah is it the eyes of i've seen that one i've seen eyes of but i've not seen the first one because it was long as hell um Mm -hmm. oh, oh yeah Zalia. you mean you mean the testament of dr mabusa the second yeah, so one. that's it the yeah, eyes I've is the third I've... one he made which we'll also get to but uh, yeah, yeah. I, well yeah unfurtly i got confused with the titles they're weird um yeah and i've seen testament um which is because it was relatively short i don't think i realized it was a sequel at the time <laughs> it's like yeah hour 40 or something like that yeah yep i'll, I'll talk about it uh but the nibelungen just to sell you on it for a second here starts okay. off with this grand fight between the titular hero and yeah. a, a and a puppet, a giant puppet dragon. I mean, yeah. I consider myself sold. Huge, huge dragon puppet that's fully articulate, and he has like this big duel with it, breeze fire, and everything. Getting kind of Melies kind of like image in my mind. Oh like yeah. That. yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's pretty spot on if you're imagining in that kind of style. Mm. But it's it's really incredible. And uh, we're seeing so, and it really establishes the sense of scale yeah. and adventure that. Uh, long is going for during that Sounds period of time yeah. yeah so again just another he's just increasing in his uh scale and ambition here with his wife uh throughout the 1920s yes with with these uh back-to-back -back successes I, I i am i go back so much i am really obsessed with the the romantic romanticist concept of the sublime and it's something that i look for in cinema a lot that sense of unmoralized awe as in like it's not awe-inspiring because it's inherently good the idea of like because it's just this large thing that makes you consider your place in reality and it's like and i feel like cinema can really do that in silent film in its image focus based like can really harness the sublime and i think that lang does that really really well he's just a large thing um mm -hmm. that that you can be in awe of that exists over you and linking it to his mythic themes is really really interesting which somewhat links it to the expressionist idea. We talk about the expressionist idea as a um, metaphorical and fanatic construct. So the idea of looking into the past and to the future and looking into the uncanny and within the self and the subjective does at least root his thematics back to expressionism, even if his visuals are not always in the expressionist mode we expect. Yeah, certainly not in the, like, to the extreme and, uh, mm. again, again, I'm Caligari and such, <laughs> uh, but his his camera is always um, dynamic, and that's yeah. a, kind of an important distinction for the movement as well. That's one thing I happen to see very attributed when describing Long's uh, directorial styles. It's very kinetic. He's got a very confident yes. direction. Uh, again, even in the, the kind of duds that we're going to talk about in the yeah. later period in here. There is competent think... craft throughout both movies that we watched. Definitely, like yes, this is a person that can can put a picture together, even if you yeah. I don't like the pictures within it. Right. So, in 1925, yeah, production began on what would become one of the silent era's most enduring and iconic films. After visiting New York City for the first time in October 1924, Lang was so awestruck by the sprawling sight of the city's unceasing skyscrapers and luminous hypnotizing lights that he was inspired to make his next film, the watershed science fiction epic, Metropolis. Yeah. This is a story that is it was related by him himself and I think is sometimes debated. He does but... like to just tell stories. I've come across this a lot. If he likes to say things, everyone's like, there is no proof apart from him saying this that this is at all true. Um... Right. Well, he did go to New York in October of 1924. Yes, but then so. there was the debated offship of, like, Harper had already written some stuff and did Metropolis yep. kind of, like, pre predate this. So there is perhaps, like, wanting to at least, I think the aesthetics of Metropolis as realised right. are obviously inspired um, by the, the, the sky of New York. But it also, like, it does look to me, it doesn't look to me that he wants to place himself as the origin of the Metropolis story. Um, yep. But yeah, I think that is the kind of the semantical division there. Is it like, yeah. is it, was the project inspired by the trip or was yes. the visual aesthetic, the design of the the yeah. city inspired by the trip? Like, uh, is, is it both? There's room for debate with like Metropolis of, yes, like there is a script to it and it is good, but how much of the film is just the visuals of Metropolis? And I'd say like, to, if I had to get mathematical, I'd say the, the majority of that film for me is its visual heft. Of that is what makes it what Metropolis is. So, you know, there is one could make the argument of the Metropolis of Metropolis is visually inspired more than it is narratively inspired. I think so. I think it's like a 60-40 for me because yeah. The, yeah. the narrative and the cohesion of it and the, the cast of characters and how they interact and progress the, the narrative 
is what gives the spectacle its emotional heft. Yeah. Because with, without it, it's just a, it would be a lot like well, the empty spectacles that we were seeing from like Lubitsch and stuff. I was about to say, with, without it, I think the exact example I'd go for is Intolerance, is, is, is yeah. the Babylon sequences is Intolerance. And that's why I'm tempted to watch the, the Babylon only part of that film. But I still would never be overawed by it because you're right. The And it's to, to link to my area. It's why the best kaiju films work is because they know that you have to attach the sense of place to the sense of destruction. And that's why these things matter when you can narratively justify the big scale pictures. And even like recent cinema, I'm not going to mention a film I saw very recently, but a recent action franchise that had its fourth chapter. Again, <laughs> it goes with this idea of we can only do big scale if we go back to small character. And how successful that is, is, is down to the viewer. But you're right, the time, the narrative to the spectacle is, is key to why spectacle works. Mm hmm. So, the intensive production of Metropolis became the most expensive film Ufa had ever produced at the time, and nearly yeah. sank the studio after its failure to perform financially. And it did so well, right? It just, you know, gangbusters came out, everyone loved it, critical and audience just beloved. There's something to be said for the year earlier, them also producing their most expensive film at that time with Faust, and it also not performing well, and then having Metropolis follow that up, probably, like, the, it's like the double whammy there, versus Metropolis single-handedly doing it, but yeah. it is, it is in, in fact, an infamous failure upon release. Uh, so much so that it led to a regime change at the studio, displacing Palmer as the mm. head of production. Uh, although he would come back and have another bout of successes after uh, having a stint in the American film industry, returning in 1929. Yeah. There's that thing, isn't it, of being like, yes, 100 years later, you're like, turns out I was right, but there is so little actual kind of like solace there. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a little bit about how the readings of Metropolis can be a little sketchy uh, politically depending on yeah. how you kind of read it here. I actually have a quote from Long weighing in on it uh, many years later when he was living in America uh, from an interview he did uh, with uh, Peter Bogdanovich, if you're interested to kind of get his feeling on it. I like that guy. So here's, here's the quote here. He said, The main thesis was Mrs. Von Harbo's, but I am at least 50% responsible because I did it. <laughs> you love that, doesn't it? You love being like, it's me, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I was not so politically minded in those days as I am now. You cannot make yeah. a social conscious picture in which you say that the intermediary between the hand and the brain is the heart. I mean, that's a fairy tale, definitely. It's but I was tale, interested yeah. in machines. It, it, I, that's what I was going to say. Not knowing that quotation, why I think why this is so polysemically read is because polysemically read um, is because it is a fairy tale, and those things are meant to be evocative and people come away it, it is oral storytelling put on film of like this story is told to you and it's like well what did you think that all the evocative ends of it mean that most of them exist to be evocative or to yeah. be like this just looks cool and this is a fun image and these are charged things i do in metropolis a movie that i absolutely adore as do you i know i do think that the the underclass uprising stuff is still really inspiring really awesome and is helped by the set i think as a piece of visual politics it's really really compelling as a piece mm -hmm. of narrative politics it's woefully simplistic but in a in a fairytale way that is enjoyable yeah and, and you know what if if you bring to the film again because yeah as even lang points out here it's just simplistic and you know like a total fantasy it's yeah. not a realistic it's science fantasy yeah. whatsoever yeah but you can also look at that as a kind of cautionary tale if you want to mm. approach it that way and that this is the kind of compromised, you know, solution that collaborating with, you know, those who, who hold power over the working class will try and impose when their backs are up against the wall, so to speak. You know, they, they will try to, to create that middle, that, that faux middle ground that is actually, a, a, you know, a, a, a faux uh, coming together, a faux compromise. Hey. I like films like this that grapple with technology because film is so inherently linked to technology. It's why I like Babylon so much. I think Babylon makes that point quite pointedly that like film has been perhaps too tied to the marching of technology as opposed to how can film progress ahead of technology and not be led by technology. Mm -hmm. And there is, and for people like myself and probably yourself, there is that sense of technology is scary. Um, and can be very, very bad, but it's also deeply awe-inspiring. And I think back to Algol, that thing of the machine in Algol looking like the film projector of cinema's relationship technology, what that means, and what the production of mass images means, and how that leads to um, change in society. And the changes in film are the changes in technology. And I have always liked film that is about the 
these things that we love but are also deeply damaging and deeply upsetting and perhaps we, that we should not love and there is a layer of that in metropolis that i find deeply deeply fascinating yeah i absolutely agree it's again one of the most important films i think uh, of all time and mm. most amazing and you know yeah inspiring and, and and i think despite any regrets long had later in life or any uh naivete that he had going into the production any contempt he had <laughs> yeah uh it, it's it's enduring and impactful legacy again despite the fact that it itself was kind of failed at the time and butchered yeah. upon later release you know r really showcases how impactful and important it is it, it has stood the test of time perhaps more than any other but uh after metropolis and that failure uh they von harbaugh and lang kind of pivoted they were still working uh in the spectacle area grandiose filmmaking and they made two more leading up to the conclusion of the silent era the yeah. first, uh, Spion, or Spies, it was a crowd-pleasing thriller that helped mend Long's reputation after the financial failure of Metropolis. It's so, so weird looking back now, isn't it, of being like, after Metropolis, this guy needs his reputation back, but like, this guy's reputation is Metropolis, and yeah. so much of cinema's reputation is Metropolis. It's just, history's funny. History's funny. It is. It is funny. It is funny what work, you know, what... what, what, what resonates at a time but what actually resonates through history it just uh, happens so much different. quicker now doesn't it because of like the increased global communication and the ability to reevaluate, to re-watch and re-disseminate i feel yeah i was gonna say so fast re-disseminate the re-evaluation of things so much more yeah. quickly i think that's that's the big thing you know something like metropolis would have taken decades to get passed yeah. around properly and reevaluated. whereas now just because we can make it so much more ubiquitous yeah. things from 10 years ago can now become bonafide classics but also like a thing comes out and i feel like the movies only just come out and there's already been a backlash and then a backlash against the backlash and then blah 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 and there's been all this kind of like what would usually be like 15 years of like film conversation just like just solidified into like a month and i'm like oh god i'm already fed up with this it's just right. yeah um, no, culture, is, culture is exhausting <laughs> it certainly is so the the last silent film that uh, long made was called frau im monde or woman in the moon which was ah, another another this, yes. jump into the sci-fi genre, but a more grounded science fiction as opposed it's like, to Metropolis. Guys, guys, it's a great idea. You're going to love it. I'm going to keep doing it. <laughs> and it, and it, it was actually uh, very prescient. It's kind of striking to go back to look at a film from 1929, which accurately predicts and kind of uh, dictates the way in which we frame uh, rocket and, and uh, interplanetary travel. Yeah, I guess it was quite prescient. In the... in the end, it wasn't a girl that was on the moon, but it got close to that as well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eventually they got there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting to see because it's like, it, it has, it's the first, uh, as far as we know, or that we can tell anyway, the first um, realization of a kind of countdown sequence for oh. rockets on film. Uh, there, there was a lot of interest in rockets, obviously, at the time with uh, the technology yeah. that was developing. And so Long and Har Von Harbo utilized that in the realization of this um you know moon film and it also it's also interesting to see how much like it was you know 40 years ahead of the moon landing versus what was very different so they have like the um you know uh zero gravity kind of interpreted there as well but instead of just kind of yeah. floating around uh one of the interesting things is that they have all these like leather loops hanging from all over the place so that they can the astronauts can like kind of move around the ship by really like cool. basically monkey barring around the whole yeah, place yeah, yeah, yeah that's cool i've been i've been watching a lot of ape movies recently so you know april um so i've been watching oh. the, of the apes so that that, that, that that intrigues me yeah so it, it was a big again another big spectacle film uh it it was not as successful as something like spion but it, it was a big bang to go out on for the silent era in 1929 yeah and so in 1931 lang makes his sound debut and it's probably the most talked about sound debut in film history. Mm. Are you are you familiar with the production and the prestige and the critical reputation of M? And that's why I made that mm sound back then when you said that. Uh, that was a, uh, that's a joke. Okay, I didn't I didn't quite hear it. Oh, yeah, I'll no, turn it up. I'll turn it up in the edit. Go. I go. You go prestige, and I go. Mm. So yeah, because it's called M. It's a good and Goebbels loved it. Yeah. <laughs> so M uh, is actually it's kind of it's kind of interesting put, I don't know if you know this put that on the poster I guess you know Goebbels loved it M yeah <laughs> M is actually kind of tied to his uh, Dr. Mabusa films I don't know if you know this but it's no. it's led by the, the the same actor they have as the same character who's the uh, police investigator in both films so there's there's kind of a, a little tie between those 
M is a crime thriller about a ghoulish child murderer, immediately demonstrating the director's intuitive sense for the newly evolved medium. Uh, Lang evades all the technical trappings of the still unrefined process. He folds in the visually potent language of the silent medium with the new advent, uh, with the new advantages of dialogue, music, and, ironically enough, silence. He utilizes silence yeah. to a well, significant degree. It's weird degree. to bring up M because, like, I know it's like a cognitive process in my mind because I watched M a long time ago and I was just like, that is a dog and bitch, right? Because it is it is so entrenched in what works about silent film and doesn't feel the to overuse the metaphor, the throw the baby out with the bathwater idea. It is it is so yeah. like, what do we still know about filmmaking? And it doesn't feel like it's showing off, look, sound, talking, talking, talking. It is still a, a beautifully made, knows the value of science, silence and image forward filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It's it's certainly to be said, uh, We you know, we've kind of talked about, I think the reputation about the early sound films are often that they're, again, so sound promotional focused and mm. that they often are very rudimentary you see again that stuff like singing in the rain you see the uh mockery of all of these kind of cheap microphone setups and these stilted yeah. acting that you have to have because you know actors have to be able to communicate in a way and the very um placed camera because you can't really move around with yeah. all of the stuff going on there you can't be as creative but then you have these silent masters like lubich and like uh, long who come swinging right out the gate with these brilliant uses of sound like in, incredible use of sound. not not just making good films with sound now but actually yeah. considering and utilizing sound as its own new tool within hmm. the medium which, and is, so which goes back to the, the the babylon idea of technology of like we've got to see things as another thing as part of our, our palette as opposed to this is the defining this is the industry now of in the same way that um with the advent of color, the best color films are the films that use color as a device and use it as a choice. And now we see that with black and white, that when black and white is a choice, it's brilliant. That all these aspects of filmmaking not defaults. They're excellent yeah. choices that can be used brilliantly. Yep. It's it's easy to take for granted all of the, mm. the tools in the belt of the, the cinematic filmmaker here. Yeah. But uh, when you see them utilized and evoked in, in that particular way, in a striking way that really understands the differentiations between all of them, it's it's kind of the, some of the most impactful stuff that you can see on yeah. film. So, Von Harbaugh and Long collaborated uh, on the one last film in 1932. Okay. A sequel to their gangster epic titled Das Testament des Dr. Mahosa. Ah, okay. So this is the one that you've also seen and you know about, right? So, I don't... Oh, God, let me actually check because I get confused. I don't know if I have seen this one. I've seen one of them. I think I've only seen the middle one. I think I've seen Testament. I'm pretty sure. If I remember your letterboxed account, which I have mostly memorized by now... I think this is the one you've seen. I've, I've definitely seen Testament. Let me see. Yep. Um, let me see. Always. Or I don't think you probably seen. haven't. That one was made in the '60s. That's his last film. Okay. That was the last what film this, he directed. What's this movie called then? It's it's called The Eyes of Doctor Mabuza. That one. What are you talking about? Yeah. So yeah. which? So this? Oh, this is Testament. This is Dust Testament. Oh, Dust cool. Testament. Right. Doctor Mabuza. Yes, I have seen this movie. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it's a sound sequel to his 1922 gangster film. Yes. Yes. A movie I have watched, not knowing that it was. Really, of course, because I can bother to watch my booster gamble because it's, what, what it's very long. Was like, I'll watch Testament. Still it's worth already... it. Still worth it. But you, the, yeah, what's yeah, nice is that you, you don't have to see. You don't have yeah. to see Dishbeeler to see. Uh, you know, my It's exciting. But... Yeah, but uh, Testament is actually very different and very interesting. Um, if I remember right, you're kind of mm, on this one. Yeah, it's yep. I I really love the Testament, Doctor Mabusa. Um, I think its imagery and its messaging is particularly striking. This film came out in 1933 and yeah. al was almost immediately pulled, immediately uh, <laughs> censored by the new Nazi regime here. Goebbels was like, hey, I love that film, Am, but what are you doing? Yeah. Uh, the film was banned by Goebbels uh, under the reasoning that it showed that an extremely dedicated group of people are perfectly capable of overthrowing any state with violence. Yeah. Which is interesting, an interesting uh, yeah. philosophy there, consideration. What I re what really resonated with me about the film was this sense of legacy and, and uh, lasting impact that authoritarian messaging can continue to have even after the the leader, the figurehead, has been deposed okay, no, I, or taken I, I, out. Mabusa yeah, yeah, yeah. in the film is literally just like a spiritual figure. He's gone. He's dead. But his ghost haunts the film and continues to inspire people to rise up and uh, attack the the state throughout the film. And yeah. that is a very chilling concept to me that I think is beautifully realized in the film, particularly given the time period that it's made within. 
but yeah, as, as you kind of alluded to, uh, it was <laughs> immediately pulled, but he was pulled into a meeting with Goebbels uh, that Len kind of stole to, uh, told a, a kind of embellished story. I think everyone can agree with later in life. Yes, yeah, yeah. The famous but one. it's a it's a good story, so we'll so tell it here anyway. <laughs> so Goebbels expressed to him the his admiration for his directing style, in particular the accomplishments of Metropolis. Yeah. He was immediately offered the chance to lead the Nazi film industry as a chief creative director, yeah. which Lang apparently feigned consideration for and then immediately fled for the country. I've read in other places that he was offered, like, like he, he told him, oh, I can't, I, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish, don't you know? And he said, and Goebbels apparently led to him. We decide who's Jewish here. Yeah, no, that's I've, I've heard it told that way. So I've, I've read that. When I did research, I didn't find much yeah. for him stating that specifically, but I've heard that. And it, again, it's it's just a, a, a good story, it feels like, to mm. tell, even if it's probably false. Uh, there, I'm sure there's truth to a, to a certain extent that that sentiment was communicated. But basically, uh, Long got the idea that he needed to get it out of Germany. He needed to yeah. leave. It was, it was all gone. It was done. <laughs> So, Do you reckon the reaction to Testament was kind of like a signifier of that, of like him realizing what expression was going to mean or meant at that point? Almost certainly. He he started production of the film before the yeah. the takeover, uh, but it was finished yeah. during during the beginning, <laughs> so that's why it was immediately yeah. rescinded. Like, oh no, um, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I'm sure. But he definitely stuck around a lot longer than uh, almost anyone else we've seen here who did decide to ultimately flee Germany. Mm. So I think there's an indication there if he yep. thought that it was not going to be as bad or that the fervor was not uh, quite as un, uh, un, you know, Yeah, um, that he could stay detached from it and then it starts to seemingly affect him a bit, gets pulled into it, and then it's like, oh no! Yeah. So he eventually wound his way to America after going through France, yeah. as many did. Um Despite a comparably late transition, Lang flourished equally in Hollywood as he had in Germany, leading the pack with a number of expressionist-inspired yeah, crime films. Yeah, so again, he was a huge, pro, you know, uh, creator of what would later become film noir, and as well yeah. as a series of successive anti-Nazi thrillers. Uh, he even made a couple of westerns, which kind of shows you how he was cool. adapting to and working within, uh, you know, the, the American industry and what the American uh film goers were really looking for they're really odd they're really odd westerns there's one that stars marlena dietrich called uh rancho notorious and it's just it's a cool name yeah yeah it's a great name um but it's just really weird it's a really weird movie uh the, the sets are the sets are like really like cheap looking like like back almost in a way and the colors are almost garish it's like really uh, kind of out there, not at all kind of a, a realistic film, but it's it's very interesting and it's got a very kind of musical sensibility to it awesome. that's kind of offbeat and odd. It's definitely uh, quirky for for a western of the era, and I think uh, yeah. maybe intriguing in the same way a kind of like a like a Johnny Guitar is for those uh, who are vested. Okay. Yeah, no, if you know if you know about Johnny Guitar's reference, I think it would make a good companion piece with Johnny yeah. Guitar. So in nineteen, uh, he obviously went on to make a series of. Uh, important. I guess I'll just list off some of the important ones here. I don't want to dwell too yeah. much on him, but um, if, if you're interested in his noir output, you should definitely consider The Big Heat, which I think, okay. uh, for me, kind of signals this trend in the 50s towards more violent noirs that you kind yeah. of see. There's less Im implication of violence and more very explicit. You should, sure. you should definitely check it. There's a couple of yeah. really shocking moments in it that I think are very narratively effective, and yeah. it, it kind of stands out as a paragon of the genre to me. Woman in the Window and Scarlet Street yeah. were two films he made back-to-back -back with the same cast uh, that are kind of very interesting uh, thematically. That's cool. And worth uh, considering there. Clash by Night is another one. Yeah, that has... never, it's like Woman in the Window and Clash by Night again, movies that I've meant to get around to for a long time, just have not, should do. Yep, come up. And again, I, I, I referenced he did some very explicit anti-Nazi films, including Manhunt and Ministry of Fear. So again, this is another case of where the, the German filmmakers yeah. are coming over and you know tur turning the uh you know their critical capabilities against the regime that they fled yeah I'd, do you reckon that is also a very understandable way of um really throwing off the suspicion that may be placed on them by people of the just general like germanophobia sense of the presumption in more effort of linking german nationality as it's still done lots of there's definitely there's definitely a possibility. I, I've read, uh, from my understanding of history, there is a lot more 
suspicion towards uh, and, and, and spikes in racism towards okay. German individuals during the First World War than the Second. Interesting. That's that is my. Is, is that understanding. because of increased migration? Do you reckon if there is like a more of a a, a a knowing and interacting with a culture outside of just what is packaged to you as that culture? Uh honestly, like my ideas, I think everyone was probably just too busy being racist towards the Japanese people in World War Two. I mean, yeah, I, I, I suppose. Yeah, I have a very different America. picture of, of of World War Two than you do. Yeah, because obviously, we are so overwhelmed by by the the Western Front, um, so right. to speak. Um, I, I think that was the, the bigger issue and like the whole German situation was probably like secondary to many of yeah, the, the that's true. Time. I, that, that's my own ignorance there. I'm not, I'm not really thinking about that because of how the war is, is presented in, in my country. Yep. Mm-hmm. That That's my understanding anyway. That's not to say that there wasn't a lot of anti-German sentiment at the time, but... Uh, there was, but yeah. Oh, yeah, but it just in the way it is told and recorded in history, I don't see mm-hmm. it come up in nearly the same facet, yeah. particularly in comparison to World War One, which was... There, there was a huge rise in anti-German sentiments yeah. uh, the outbreak of World War One, or at least America's engagement in World War One. Yeah. <clears throat> So in 1959, after all of this, uh, Lang eventually returned to Germany to produce a new adaptation of his late ex-wife's celebrated novel, The Indie Scramble. So I, we talked about this when we did the Conrad Vey episode. He also made a two-part adaptation of The Indian Tomb, and he yeah. shot these in location in India. Uh, and today, they're seen as another creative high point of Lang's career after experiencing mm-hmm. many ups and downs in the Hollywood studio system. He, he, he grew very disillusioned with Hollywood towards the end of the 50s. Uh, just Again, contempt. Kind of navigating the system. Yep. <laughs> so he, he went back and he made these, which many consider like some of the last masterpieces of his career. Uh, his final film, however, as we talked about, was the third installment in the Dr. Mabuza series. Okay. So kind of a nice book ending uh, of yeah. his career. Coming back to it's Germany. Nice there's one at each stage up. of his career. That's a, that's a really cool thing. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, so that he he has the one in the silent period when he's you know basically at the top there making these creative yeah. grand epics. Then he's uh, right at the tail end, you know, where he's just about to leave, like literally his last film for Germany before he flees to America. And then once again he returns and caps off his career with yeah. uh, one, one more in this trilogy of films. He spent his retirement years reinforcing his legacy in Hollywood, garnering the affections of enthusiastic French and American critics alike who were more than happy to play into his eccentric eccentricities and embolden his legend. Uh, yeah, he was kind of known as a, uh, a a piece of shit, an asshole, in some <laughs> many ways by a lot of people. That's something that's not really touched on in, in these notes here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the kind of stereotypical German, um, uh, you know, a lot of people kind of noticed that about him, that this this kind of authoritarian figure mm. they, they kind of attributed to his directorial style in particular. He was apparently a very cruel uh, director. Okay. He was very, very abusive in, in that regard and manipulative and would play actors against one another. So not a figure necessarily to personally um, yeah. uh, heroize, but... Yeah, we don't lionize for its way. No. But his his impact in oeuvre is, is undeniable and still mm. a very fascinating... Uh, filmography to go to with many interesting high points and uh, deviations and yeah uh, again like uh, politically very interesting too yeah 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 that makes sense for sure and, and it all started from what we have recorded in 1919 with Die Spinnen yeah um, the spiders um... yep what do you think of the spiders Stephen I don't think it's a good tool. I just, I, I'm really sorry. I feel like I'm not going to bring like anything of like huge, like those. Perhaps they merit a more like intellectual breakdown of them. I got very bored by both of them. One of them is shorter, so therefore I prefer the shorter one. Um, because I think it's kind of interesting and, and a little bit different there. I prefer the second one because I feel like uh, there's a a little bit more artistry here. Well, this goes um, back to my Joss Whedon and forget the fact that he's a horrible person, but the Joss Whedon Justice League versus the Zack Snyder Justice League. If, yes, you may argue there are bits that are better than Zack Snyder one, but it's also four hours long, so that kind of balances it out for me. I feel like, yeah, okay, there is a little bit more going on, but it also doesn't wear its length very well. Um, the second movie feels baggy. Has more yeah. packed more racism into those hours. <laughs> more yeah, I mean, I 
uh, maybe uh, more cultures for sure, but I don't know. The yeah, racism I mean, they, in part I'm one true. is pretty, pretty. Yeah, I, uh, I, I mean more is in a more diverse, more more flavors of racism. You're right. Yeah. It's, not, it's not as laser focused on just really in your face racism. I think I was also so turned off by the first film that I was never going to enjoy the second film. No, nah, I, yeah, I get like, that. I was just like, nah, I'm just not. Um, so it was, you know, I probably could have watched it better. Uh, without a, an overriding I, I do wonder because you watched them did you watch them back to back yeah pretty much okay i split mine up i watched one and then i watched the second part uh a number of days later yeah and i wonder if that gave me like kind of a renewed billy because i went into part two and i was kind of like hold on this, this isn't so bad definitely racist still but there's yeah. a little bit more interest in kind of I, action going on in the in, filmmaking in both of them i kind of i don't hate the beginning of both of them because i quite like the kind of like the cross-cutting stuff of like i guess parallel more have been like here is the the criminal world and here is the normal world i think it's done better in, in the first movie maybe if you go through that i do really like that opening sequence yeah. of here's what's going on in criminal society and here's what's going on at, at the ball and the explorer mentality if they were like Poulard's le vampire they were more just mm. like let's just have a fun caper with the underground of a city i would enjoy them a lot more but i think again because I, I have seen the vampire and i found the vampire to be so ingenious with its filmic language at points and i'm like well th that exists and the things that i would like from this do exist over there and do not have that baggage around them and also use the the, the grammar and the bits of film there are bits in their vampire which i think are just so inventive it's a bit what and it's serialized obviously it's been one of the early episodes where it does the irma vep vampire bit and it, mm -hmm. and it stop motion animates a poster presenting Irma Vep to make the words move around. You're like, that would look cool today and does look cool today. And yes, there are some cool shot constructions and camera movements in yep. the spiders, but there's nothing ingenious. And no, there's nothing, ingenious there's nothing particularly inventive uh, yeah. cinematically. Yeah, so it should be said that the, the Spiders, this two-part film, is yeah. part of a series of popular serials that were being made at the time. So, you know, in the teens, uh, alongside the kind of uh, burgeoning of feature films you have going on, you also have these multi-part serials that would come out in parts over Which periods of time. Which links back to the genesis of the, of, of the novel. So you've got these kind of like art forms rising up in similar ways of novels yep. were serialized and presented in that way. And it seems to make sense that film would be in that way. And novels were serialized for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, a lot of them were very kind of like adventure focused. They often ended with big like cliffhangers to make you yeah. tune into part two or part five or whatever. The Spiders was also planned as uh, originally, I think, like a six part series, but they ended up only it making like two. It. Uh, I mean, uh, the, the premise is obviously, and you've got like your central character. He's, you know, explorer man, uh, you know, Avenger mm -hmm. of blah, blah, blah. Which, uh, should... An archetype that I just inherently don't enjoy anyway, and I'm never really going to get on with. Right. Uh, just colonial fun. This is, I mean, like, the best parallel I can think is that this is the kinds of films that were being made that would inspire Indiana Jones. Yeah, later, yeah, I was, from, I, like I was so beating around that when talking about this movie. I don't want to be like, you know, Boss Baby vibes of, it's like Indiana Jones, but very much. No, definitely the, is, definitely is. When they were going for that. that. And from the, from the setting of Indiana Jones in, like, the, the early 1930s as well, that's very much, they're very yeah. much intending to replicate the sense of spectacle and adventure uh, and action that you got from the serials yeah. of the 1910s and such. Yeah. That was uh, to totally, totally intentional. But unlike something like the, the Indiana Jones, you don't have a particularly enjoyable protagonist here no. to follow. And the, the narrative is not all... It's it's really just spectacle for spectacle's sake. And yeah, it's just stuff, like stuff, romp. stuff. It's ephemeral, yeah. isn't it? It's just a to... bunch of tropey ephemeral pieces. And, and all of the, unlike, in, say, like Indiana Jones, all of that stuff helps to ease, uh, particularly in the second film, the, the racist yeah. elements, the exploitative elements of like a Temple yeah. of Doom, which sure. again, there, there's, there's plenty of here, but you can see that, that that's the DNA that leads to something yes. like a Temple of Doom is these, because another big appeal of it, it's not just adventuring and, you know, searching for, for gold and these sacred uh, heralded treasures, it's through an ancient civilization or indigenous population yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, population that <laughs> we have to now exploit and uh, yes. rob from. And that are, are inherently savages that exist as the thing to be, to be evil and threatening around. Yeah. To, to split racist hairs again, uh, I, I do think part one is particularly heinous in this because yeah, of its characterization. Yeah. Even more so where again, like they're both bad, but one is more familiar stereotypes to the time. The other is just this this singular hammering in of, oh, yes, they are an ancient 
Incan civilization, so they must just be all about human sacrifice. That's yeah, the yeah. only defining characteristic about these, you know, uh, the, these people. They're just like, human sacrifice for everything. We love our human sacrifice. Yeah. Everyone's down for human sacrifice. That's the only thing we ever do around here. And anyone who does, you know, like the, the one person who doesn't is, of course, you know, going to be the uh, love interest for the, the white savior. And is saved from, from culture. Yeah, totally. I mean, the second yeah. one, I, I don't want to equivalent to them, but the second one has this really horrible kind of like idea of, I mean it's just the orientalized idea of the east the east yep. as this rising threat there must be it's a lot about um, they talk about the imperial crown and the imperial crown as well as a literal a literal title that the the imperial crown will um, put all of asia within that thrall it's like almost exactly that it's just a lot there's a lot going I, on i think there's a an interesting historical context here that obviously this film is like too dumb to, to actually kind of like consider but one of the things is like the idea about this the the buddha's head of a, that they're looking for that can yeah. restore the empire is it's particularly at this period of time which is right around the time of the boxer rebellion uh okay. and the the crumbling of the chinese uh empire at this time and that's kind of the interesting idea to me i'm like oh that's the idea that we're referring to here because geopolitically china is coming like the empire the the uh the Chinese Empire yeah. is about to collapse essentially here and come and become modernized uh, with the First Republic there. So that is interesting to me in that respect, but it's really just yeah. historically, contextually there. Like again, obviously, it's still just for the sake of exploitation and the yeah, also it just thinks that Asia is Asia. It has just the aesthetic of just East Asia, which includes India. Of just like this is just it's such a homogenized continent in this film. Um, it's it's a little confusing because I know what happens. They, they actually don't go to Asia in the film. I don't know if you saw that but that the first part of the film takes place is in the, a is the under city yeah the the underground city in san francisco there's an yeah. underground like network of uh, a city underbelly that exists you know underneath chinatown yeah which is uh, uh, again like on, on a surface level if you wanted to strip away i'm like ooh, it's like the the like the surface level intrigue of oh there's secret societies and underground yeah. cities and stuff and crime syndicates that's all like the the titillating you know it's adventure cute. spectacle stuff oh, but it's kind of fun then, yeah. yeah but and and that's where i got any enjoyment from any enjoyment from the film yeah, there's yeah, all right. this action going on you got your trap doors you got your secret passageways yeah. it's all that cool like saturday well, morning cartoon stuff head comes in and being like yeah exactly i've seen this, yeah. I've seen this done good <laughs> like, yeah there's there's better things and what kind of sucks about it is like ultimately if i i was i was looking at this i'm like maybe this isn't too bad still racist but kind of you know cool still like ultimately none of the stuff that happens in underground yeah. chinatown matters like literally it's just like the hero gets away and it's like Oh, okay. We got some news about where it might be. Well, let's go to England, and there's something going on yeah. in the Falklands. So let's uh, let's check <laughs> that out. And yeah, so it feels like there's so much less to say. It feels very deflating for this to be kind of like the final cap to the the uh, Weimar period discussion yeah. here, because it it feels like grasping at straws to be like there is some indication of Lang's direction here yeah. as a filmmaker and how he's able to competently compose uh exhilarating you know filmmaking but it's in mm. only brief spurts and there's very poor characterization and again it's all just kind of crushed under this uh you know and massive weight of race. i don't remember the images they don't they don't leave an imprint on my mind as very much it's of a, of, of a muchness with many other things i've seen at this point it yeah is, yeah no it's it's just Restored really to be to forgotten me. It's just to me the Chinatown stuff that even kind of sticks in my memory. I don't remember anything visually from part one. Yeah, but even it was, there, it was just the a big idea mess. of, as we've alluded to, the idea that there that other nationalities want to build their place underneath us as a way of to, to yeah. bring it down and global conspiracy. Yeah, it's, it's oh yeah, no doubt, it, ab Horrendous. absolutely. Yeah, heinous. Again, like the yeah. only enjoyment I got was on that very like surface no, totally. level I, trying I, to I, ignore I, it. And, and I get it. I get it. And it, like I said, it was all for nothing anyway, because that part has no connection at all to the actual narrative. So it was like, okay, well, that was a big action set piece for nothing. Oh, it, it, and it's got to throw in the extra racism having, you know, opium den aspect yeah. to it too. Yeah, that's all there. That's all there. Uh, I couldn't say for sure, but almost certainly everyone is in yellow and brown face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. Yeah. I I can't imagine that the, uh, the casting call in uh, Germany at the time was particularly diverse. So yeah. I I have no problems just generalizing and saying that yeah there's there's definitely <laughs> even more racism going on you know uh, in the production of racist fictions there you go Ugh. yep yeah so it was it's very unfortunate I was hoping to get some kind of fun 
action adventure serialist any kind of like story to its um return finding yeah is it just okay cool a little bit a little bit it's kind of kind of interesting here particularly for the time period and i'll go ahead and tell you what i got written so the spiders apparently has not survived intact uh, yeah. uh over the years um it was kind of hard to tell it looks very well restored it does it does i mean there not, are bits of there are changes in the quality of footage throughout um but never but, nearly as bad there's never a scene where it's like where we have the still images like we've had in no, other cases yeah, yeah, true. and for two films this is you know it's two films it's kind of uh, surprising to get uh, the video transfer, which has recently been digitally remastered, has utilized a speckled worn print, which looks like a 17.5mm or 16mm reduction. We can assume that since The Spiders was previously considered a lost film, the original print used for restoration in the 1970s is the only surviving print. Yeah. Is, uh, that is a quote I have from SilentEra.com. Thank you, SilentEra.com. Uh, yeah. So it was it was rediscovered in the seventies. Um, not sure exactly where, but the restoration was completed in nineteen seventy eight, and it was actually had a consultation from Fritz Lang on it, who was still alive at the time. He consulted oh, on God. the setting. Yeah. So it's like you get your little Criterion sticker on the front of being like director approved transfer. So there you go. Yeah. I do find it kind of ironic though, because I was at the end sequence of part two, which takes place in a big volcano. It's just yeah. like this kind of obfuscating red tint the entire time yeah, 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 yeah it's like impossible to tell what's going on in like Red the last like no of the do it apply that filter apply it yeah i demand I... it obfuscate <laughs> my film yeah so that makes it even more kind of incomprehensible but it, that you was know, definitely people the complain about not... the coloring in that one car wine box set but fritz lang was at it before <laughs> this is true so again, uh, I don't know, but if that's that's the intent. And I get the reason why. I think there's also just yeah some of the incomprehension is just the direction. Again, it's only an occasionally <laughs> well-made film. It's not yeah. it's not a totally coherent project. It's probably for the best that this is what Long did at the time instead of Caligari. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. So I guess uh, I guess that's it. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> it's that's kind that's... of a. a not That's a great us. note to go on for the, the Weimar period, I mean, but, but still... it was a great note to go on for a lovely conversation for Fritz Lang and a very important filmmaker and some, some, some good topics touched upon there on the way. So I thank you. Absolutely. That. Yeah. And just, you know, reconsidering everything we've talked about, I think it's a very mm. important era of film history to cover and yeah. shines a light on a lot of the nuance and again, the ups and downs of all the great films uh, and the not so great films that were made during the, the era. Uh, obviously films like this were still impactful. And again, we got a sense of variance, you know, so it's yeah. not just yeah, expressed as so. horror films. We've seen, we've seen <laughs> comedies, we've seen uh, historical epics, we've seen morality uh, pictures. Yeah. Morality pictures. And we've seen racist adventure spectacles. Like Immorality this. pictures. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's it for the, the Weimar period. I think that's a okay. nice little aspect of our next in that part of the world. Oh, no! <laughs> uh, uh, that'll be our, our, our other podcast series, uh, exploring the Nazi propaganda films. <laughs> no, please, no, please, no, please, no, please, no, please. <laughs> no, no. No, not going to do that. I've watched a couple. They're not very good. <laughs> but if they were, you know... <laughs> I you know I tell you if they were you know like <laughs> I'm 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 an objective observer here I, I I'm not going to bring politics into this uh, and if you wonder why this podcast is come back it's because David has been cancelled <laughs> <laughs> yes but hopefully we do come back we come yes. back uh, I don't know maybe like in in the summer uh, the next series I'll just go ahead and announce it that I've planned out is that yeah. we'll jump back series to get... three. Yep, is going to be a, a history of the actors who were lost in the transition to sound. So act, the, uh, the silent actors of Hollywood in particular. We're going to talk about all those legends, those names, those people that were referenced in Babylon that you probably heard about. Ex- yeah, yeah. Lost good way to put it. We're going to call it, we're calling it Lost Voices. Perfect. I love it, actually. Yep, that's that's the title of Series 3. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Stephen, you want to uh, drum us out here? Yeah, you know, so if you, if you want to find and restore some racist epics, then I guess look around you if needs be um, for that final thing that will really cement, really cement the um, the reputation of, of legendary filmmakers. So, so please do look around. And while you're looking around on your device, which, you know, you get device out, it's the modern day. You live on your device. Kids these days. Well, when you're on it, rate, comment, subscribe, do those good things. You know, give us a five star. We think we're a five star podcast because it behooves us to say so. And it would help us if you thought that too even just put it that way you don't even need to think it just put it there that'll be great um you can find me where other podcasts are found i do a lot of stuff with jack vaughn calvin etc um you know from the wider the twin geeks community 
but um, the first point of call for me please um patreon.com slash the snacks on film um where we've just at this stage wrapped up march night Shyamalan. oh when does this post david as soon as i can make get it out <laughs> will that be march or will it be april probably april probably okay then april. i can release i can well, hopefully this won't come out before the March night episode where Jack reveals this. So you may have thought, because I've been I watched all the Planet of the Apes movies, that April was going to be April. Ah, it was a gag. It was subterfuge. It is not. Jack has picked Elaine Maple. Oh, I like that. I mean, Elaine you only Maple. got like a sm- I, I, if you're just doing the director works, I guess that's a four small films. four four films. <laughs> four films. Um, I'll be be interested to see uh, New Leaf. Great, great, I hilarious love, that's, film. That's the Walter only Matthews. one that I've seen. I'm really excited to watch the other three. I'm really excited you know, to watch Ishtar. <laughs> I was gonna say Ishtar. Ish, it's got a it's got a reputation, you know. Yeah. But I, I think it's it's getting reevaluated. I was yeah. sad though because um, the recent restoration of it, uh, it was announced to be released by Powerhouse Films, and uh, then it got canceled. It got pulled. Someone working the strings with the rights uh, didn't want it. Oh. And it's it's kind of suspected that maybe one of the very vain stars of the film who who does not appreciate the reputation of the <laughs> doesn't want it released. Who still I, I don't know. Uh, it's just just speculation. Not yeah, even gonna I name think, him, but you know. Kino thanks on Ishtar, and then a kind of like retrospect about her and three other movies, which I've not seen Mikey and Nikki yet. Really want to, and I don't really know anything about Heartbreak Kid. I've seen um, it. Do you like do you, do you like Columbo? I love Peter Falk. Yeah, there you go. That's all you need. By Columbo, do you mean that guy from Winds of Desire? A movie that I absolutely adore? Yeah, love that yeah. guy. He absolutely rules. Yeah. I, don't, I, have no, I have no opinions of Columbo. I've never really watched it. It was not really a big part of, of me growing up. Um, That's interesting. My understanding great. is that he's way more popular over in, in, in the European side. A lot of yeah. European people love Columbo. Yeah, I mean, it, it clearly is indelibly popular. Um, but, you know, never really and also John Cassavetes. John Cassavetes in that film. And yeah, I know. Everyone I mean, loves John Cassavetes. I absolutely love John Cassavetes. I still need to watch the rest of his movies, actually, because I mostly adore them. Mostly adore them. Um, so yeah, that's what's going on in my neck of the woods. Um, there you go. And Heartbreak Kid, which uh, we referenced on this podcast before as a film that is uh, not available, really, but is not yeah. lost. Yeah, that yeah. Was okay. of, that was one of the films I used in that definition. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Oh, it all it comes back full circle. So yeah, um, you can find David's uh, writings on thescreenkeeps.com. You can also his, his valuable contributions to this in general. Um, I would say, please, if you're not, read the episode descriptions of these episodes because I really enjoy that every time. They're very, very detailed and they're very additive to the experience and some really good work from David there. So if you miss David Thank writing you. like I do, then please make sure to. It is always a bit of a pleasure for me to go through it and look at that um, and reminding me of what's covered. And, you know, it, it can cover it in a more, a, a clearer way than the inherently rambling conversation that we're going to get into so there is there is real work there to get yeah to. i th- i think i come through better in writing more often than i do in dialogue there's a lot more ums and ahs and uh and stuff i cut out here so oh, <laughs> you see that, that's when the listener goes what there are none of those and that's called great editing there you go yeah well hard work goes into these mm-hmm. <laughs> From the well thank you so much steven yeah. thanks thanks for joining again for the season i'm looking forward yeah. to when we return and do it again it's always a pleasure to always explore pleasure. and uh, disseminate more of this important film yes. history with you thank you so much and yeah uh, please please keep following what we do and all the great things that we do after that au revoir oh you know what abianto oh, wait, wait, what, what, yeah that's it i'll be the same yeah, germany Tschüss.